Last week, uh, we heard the promise of God to Abraham. And what I told you about was how God's covenant became entirely one-sided. That God would bless Abram and make him the father of many nations. And all Abram had to do was go with it. There was no fine to pay, no law given, no purgatorial preparation, no smiting involved, not even a little. This promise was that first step God took in repairing the break that had happened at the Garden of Eden. The first time you see God say, all right, you humans are clearly not up to making a fair deal, so I'll make an unfair one. The promise will rest on me alone. 400 years after Abraham, Moses comes on the scene. It's then we receive the law, those 613 rules you'll mostly find in Leviticus that spell out exactly what to do to please God and be a good person. Now, I always feel compelled to mention this to you as Christians, that we've had 2,000 years of sort of blithely rejecting the law, mixed with more than a little anti-Semitism in our history. So we often dismiss or denigrate the law instinctually, rather than finding our beloved family tree's roots there. I'm no scholar of the ins and outs of keeping kosher or orthodox, and even from those 600-some laws, countless more practices have grown up. But I have read the laws themselves, and they're not to be so lightly dismissed. There's obvious stuff, of course, like don't murder, don't steal, don't accept bribes, here's how to worship. But there's also beautiful stuff there. Just laws on caring for the poor, how much money you're to give away, how someone who has hurt the community can be restored back into it. There are some strange and weirdly specific rules, like how to make restitution when your neighbor's ox has fallen into your open pit, but you get the idea. The nutrition and cleanliness laws, I don't know, have always sounded pretty neurotic to me, but if strange and unknown illnesses made the average life expectancy around you under 30 years old, yeah. I mean, some of these commandments around washing hands and avoiding blood and not eating bottom feeders make sense, even if they don't use terms like infectious disease or bloodborne pathogens or bacteria and instead opt for terminology like abomination before the Lord. But coming through all of these laws is a very human idea. And the idea is this. Every wrong can be balanced with a corresponding action. An eye for an eye, you've heard it called, which literally comes from the law that says if you blinded someone in a fight, you had to lose the same number of eyes that your opponent did, out of fairness. If you killed someone, you would be killed. If you accidentally killed someone, you would be exiled. If you harmed someone in some way, there was a set amount to pay to make it right. In the Bible, in the law, this is called justification. And every society works on this idea that the scales of injustice can be made perfectly even 
by retribution. The problem is, of course, you already see it, is that it doesn't exactly work like that, does it? Not deep down where it matters. Maybe your neighbor can pay to replace the ox fallen in his open pit, but you loved your old ox and you bottle-fed him as a calf. A cash payment for losing a leg after your neighbor's horse trampled you doesn't exactly make up for never being able to walk or run again. No amount of capital punishment, no matter how righteously vindicated we feel in dispensing it, will bring back the beloved dead. Notice that the retribution is an imitation of the original harmful action. The cycle of imitation, violence for violence, continues. Do you remember the story of God's covenant being entirely one-sided? Paul did. Our Bible study of Galatians wrapped up this week, uh, which is, that letter is a more condensed and angrier version of what Paul will later write to the church in Rome, which we read from today. He says, no one has followed the law more than me. I loved it and I gave my life to it. And when I met Jesus, I felt how it failed. I felt how all my wrongs could not be leveled out by any act of retribution or justice. Paul remembered that the original promise to Abram was entirely one-sided. Paul writes, Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Okay, you're thinking. Classic Protestant sermon here, right? Justification by faith, not by works. Check. But I just want to push this a little further in your mind this morning. What Paul understood is that we are people of imitation. We learn and become who we are by imitating other people. And it's not just as children, but our whole lives. We imitate behavior we receive. Our clothing, music, ideals, possessions, houses, desires are shaped by the imitation of others. So when that particular cycle is caught in the way that it always is, in returning violence for violence, the only way for us to know a way out is to see it happen. When Jesus steps into that place of crucifixion, he's willingly entering that system so entrenched in our values. He steps into the place of death. And it's from that spot where he breaks something. Where everything in us calls for retribution in that moment, he shows the unthinkable response of total forgiveness. The bargain was always one-sided entirely. It is only by us entering this mercy that we can begin to offer it. I think this has a very real implication and demand on your life. 
One of the questions we asked in this week in Bible study was, how do we love someone when we really just don't love someone? How do we forgive when we really just don't feel forgiving? Today, Paul has the answer. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the first step is knowing yourself as loved and forgiven by God. Knowing is not even a good word there, I don't think. Feeling yourself known and loved and forgiven by God. And as you feel that, you think of the person you do not love and you do not forgive, and you imagine him or her in that same place before God. Then you ask, what would I be doing if I actually did love or forgive this person? Then you do that thing. In doing the thing that you know you would do if you felt loving or forgiving, forgiving, in that action, something shifts in my experience in, on the occasions I'm able to do this. The cycle of enmity starts to break because the other person experiences a very different energy coming from you than these old, predictable, set-in patterns. Showing someone love is the only possibility of making them lovable. This is the way the world changes.